You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends. I'm not certain if there's a topic, uh, maybe other than religion, partisan politics. This is probably the third. The, the subject matter we're going to discuss today maybe causes more barking than most others. And I, as I as I read, especially social media, I've come to know that people like to express their opinions. A lot of opinions sometimes aren't necessarily cradled with a lot of fact, but just opinion. And we all have that. We we all have opinions. And this has to do uh, with energy. Clean, affordable, dependable, reliable energy. And North Dakota, this is another installment of North Dakota's role. North Dakota is a real player, not just here, but globally, for a lot of reasons. And we're going to discuss that today with two guests that know a lot more than I'll ever know. I'm going to read something that pertains to one of the guests and the organization he's the CEO of. They have a team of 230, I suspect it's north of that, that focuses on R&D, research and development of innovative energy and environmental technologies. And that includes coal utilization, emissions, carbon management, oil and gas research, alternative fuels, renewable energy. And all of that's critically important. And the other person is, this is probably the fourth time he's been on Mike Seminary and Friends, is the manager of maybe... Maybe the, one of the most important, important offices currently in the state of North Dakota of Energy and Economic Coordination Office. He's the manager. So I'd like to welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends, Tom Oakland, the aforementioned manager, and a new guest to Mike Seminary and Friends, the CEO of EERC, maybe one of the most important research entities in the country, maybe on the planet, with regards to the aforementioned subject matter, uh, Charlie... Gorecki. Gentlemen, great to see you. Welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. How are you this morning? I'll go to you first. Charlie, it's great to meet you. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. Uh, it's really pertinent today as we look at all the uh, energy development opportunities that North Dakota has and how it fits into the, the social and political framework in the United States. It, it, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, thank you. You're a veteran, and so you have served our country, and you also probably have a little bit different perspective based on your background with regards to reliable, affordable, clean energy and its role in terms of independence and security for our country. And Tom, it's great to see you again. How are you? Doing well, Mike. It's good to be here. I'm going to echo Charlie's comments. It's it's It'll be good to sit down and talk about some of these current issues going on and just highlighting some of the importance we have here in the state. I know for us, we've got, there's a lot of interest coming here in terms of new business, but our existing businesses that we have and our existing production within energy. And I think 
um, all of us can agree on security, reliability of energy. And I think this topic will be great for us to to talk about and looking forward to being a part of it. Well, thank you. Charlie, I'm going to go to you in a second. I'm going to kind of create this umbrella for how we approach our discussion today. In about 30 years, there'll be another 2 billion people on the planet. The overwhelming majority of them will come into life on a planet that has nowhere near the resources the United States of America does. And just uh, the basic access to refrigeration for medicine will be a great hardship for them. And that requires some form of dependable and cheap energy source. And I'm going to say this, this is my opinion, that ramp off of how we currently depend on at 80% in this country in terms of how we utilize fossil fuels, that off-ramp is a long one. It's not a light switch. And we can't, can't make dramatic changes that put those new 2 billion people to come in any more harm's way that they're going to be. So that's my personal opinion, and I think the importance of what we're doing in North Dakota and what you do at EERC and at the state and with your private partners is critically important. With that, Charlie, give folks just a, you know kind of a quick overview of this incredible institution that we have in North Dakota, the EERC, it, and how long it's been involved in not just oil gas research, but also exploring uh, ways to capture effectively and affordably carbon, et cetera, et cetera. If you wouldn't mind doing that, please. Yeah, and, and I'll do this uh, pretty quick. Um, just a background on EERC. So before we were the EERC, we were started and founded in 1951. We were part of the U.S. Bureau of Mines. So we were a federal facility. Uh, federal employees working here it was on the campus of the University of North Dakota. Uh, our focus and our our mission was to understand low rank coals. So where were they? How can we use them to make clean, reliable, affordable power, emissions control? Uh, we became part of the Department of Energy when it was formed in the 1970s. And then in 1983, under then President Ronald Reagan, we were defederalized. So taken uh, removed from being federal facility to being a state facility as part of the University of North Dakota because we were housed here. At that time in uh, 1983, we really diversified on what we looked at. So we still look at low rank coals. We still look at how to uh, utilize them, find them, turn them into great products, turn them into electrons, emission control. But we also do other things, uh, carbon capture and storage, renewable energy, all those things that you talked about earlier. How do we produce more oil and gas out of the Bakken formation, for example, and do it in a way that's environmentally sustainable? And we do this uh, with our research staff here. And you mentioned more than 230. It's probably about 280 employees today at the EERC. Uh, we're a non-teaching branch. So everybody that works here is focused on contract research. Uh, we are the State Energy Research Center. We've been designated that by the legislature uh, a couple of sessions ago. So we do have that designation. And the way that we work is we look at these challenges that industry is having with respect to providing clean, reliable, affordable power. 
And we leverage public dollars from the state and the federal government with industry dollars to solve these great big challenges. And our vision is to lead the world in developing solutions to energy and environmental challenges. That's our vision. And it's this enormous one. Uh, it's one that makes people excited to come here, um, makes people excited to to have an impact on their families here. And you mentioned earlier, um, two billion more people in the next 30 years. Right now we have 8 billion people on planet earth and one quarter of them today are in energy poverty. And, and energy poverty defined by you cannot, you do not either, either have reliable, affordable energy, or you just simply can't afford that energy. And you're absolutely right. Most of that growth is going to happen, that two more billion people in places where they already don't have reliable, affordable energy. So we're going to continue to expand that. And another point you hit on, spot on, is more than 80% of our energy today is produced from fossil fuels in the United States. The picture is exactly the same across the world. Growing population, growing need for reliable, affordable, clean energy necessitates that we look at every single resource we have and try to produce them and use them in the most clean and affordable way we possibly can. Thank you for that, Charlie. I'm going to you in a second, Tom, but I'm going to ask Charlie a follow-up question after I add something. ERC has been around, as you mentioned, since the 50s, defederalized in 83. I remember the picture, by the way, of maybe one of the most incredible college presidents ever, uh, Thomas Clifford, with Senator Andrews. I can't remember the other person there, maybe the CEO at the time. I remember that. It was in 1983. Since that time, the work that's been done in terms of research, all sorts, and I kind of listed that in the beginning, nothing short of staggering, and it gets global attention, and here's proof in the pudding. Some of the partners, these are private sector companies investing in partnership with EERC, uh, Kiwi out of Omaha, maybe one of the biggest construction companies on the planet, uh, Minkota Power, TC Energy, Mitsubishi, Heavy Industries. Mitsubishi's been around for, I don't know, 120 years or something. Huge, huge company. Schlumberger, um, maybe one of the biggest companies on the planet, 90,000-some employees. Department of Energy, BNI, Red Trail Energy. There are a lot of private sector partners that invest building relationships and putting money into the research that's being conducted at EERC. So my follow-up question, Charlie, is what makes North Dakota, its footprint, the geology under, underground, and you know that probably better than anybody because of what you studied, what makes North Dakota so unique that these partners not just because of your research, they get it with regards to the role we potentially can play globally leading in this effort. We, we have this incredible nexus of things that's happening here. Uh, you mentioned geology, so I'll start with geology. Absolutely, we have incredible geology, geology that has billions, probably more than a trillion barrels of oil and gas in it, that it has safely 
cooked and stored and held in the ground for millions of years. We have more than 800 years of coal resources that are mineable today's with today's technology. Uh, we have billions of tons of storage potential for CO2, billions of tons. Um, we have wonderful drinking water in the first thousand feet of, uh, of rock. We have incredible drinking water in the state of North Dakota. And we have some of the best soil in the world, right? In the Red River Valley in particular. So if you look at everything under your feet, we have an incredible resource base, which was what makes North Dakota an incredible resource exporter, right? We export more than, we export six times the energy that we consume ourselves. So we, we're an incredible uh, energy powerhouse and, and agriculture powerhouse. So that's part one is, is what we have under our feet. I would say part two is we have an incredible set of, of leaders in the state of North Dakota, um, elected leaders, uh, industry leaders, who have worked together to craft policy to be able to produce uh, oil and gas in a clean and reliable way, to be able to put a framework in place to store carbon dioxide, to put a framework in place to remediate uh, mining operations to as good or better than they were in the first place. So we have that framework. And then I think um, I go to other places all the time and we have a team North Dakota where we have industry uh, research in the case of EERC and our partner institutions uh, and government with our government leaders all working together to try to solve these big challenges and provide not just North Dakota, not just the United States, but the entire world with food and fuel and energy in general. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what makes North Dakota so unique. Thank you, Charlie. Tom, a, a, a question I think could be helpful for listeners with regards to North Dakota's approach to not just the subject matter, the long-term, clean, reliable, affordable sources of uh, energy, as they mentioned, clean, but they we we. We established this office, which you are the manager of, the North Dakota Economic, Energy and Economic Coordination Office. You're the manager. Why is someone like EERC, what Charlie just described, its history, the 280 employees, and the private sector partners that have great interests, and they put their money where their mouth is, frankly, why is that so important for your office, North Dakota, and its citizens? Well, I, I would start with saying that with any business operating in the state right now, <clears throat> they're in competition with, with the neighboring states um, in terms of the economics behind their projects, obviously, but also EERC has assisted not just with like, we're talking mostly about energy, production of uh, whether it's electricity, oil and gas and so forth, but look at the bigger picture and look at the products that come off of it, right? We have, we need the um, inputs for manufacturing materials, materials for the latest technology, whether it's right now, big, big topic push for electric vehicles, for example, that's a, that's a very hot topic. Well, can we, utilize our state energy research center 
to assist in the cleanest ways to not only make energy or transport energy, but also the inputs for the products needed to manufacture what we need in, in the U.S. And I think that's that's the that's another big part of it that BERC really contributes. And um, I can speak for the Commerce Office and the Energy and Economic Coordination Office that when we get a phone call from a company wanting to find a site to locate at, there's plenty of places where you can operate, where you can build, where you can you can do the the, the uh, complete that project you're looking at doing. Where we where you win is if you're able to do it in the most efficient way possible. We're able to maybe coordinate with the neighboring uh, operator to take your byproducts and recycle them to reuse them. And in this case, we're talking a lot about uh, carbon dioxide as an example. It's kind of, it's considered an emission, but maybe it should be looked at as a byproduct or a usable product as well. And I think that's where the EERC has come in heavily for us. Uh, we make introductions to companies looking for a site selection and right off the get-go when they realize we have this resource, this amount of knowledge and and uh, all the ability that, that can help that project move forward, it's so valuable. It's just, it's something that no other organization has. So it, I can't speak highly enough of it. I, I remember the first time I really heard of the EERC. This is going to date me. It's when there was a fair amount of discussion regarding clean coal technologies. And I'm going to say this is between 25 and 30 years ago, somewhere in that area, maybe even more. I've been around long enough. And I remember flying back from somewhere, I can't remember, flight into Bismarck, and the person sitting next to me and the two people across the aisle from me uh, were Asian. In fact, they were from Japan. And I and I asked, what's bringing you to Bismarck? And fortunately, they, they spoke very fluent English. Me, of course, that's the only language I could speak. They were telling me they were here to learn more about clean coal technologies. And they were coming into Bismarck, then going up to one of the plants, and they were going to be meeting people from the EERC. So I, I remember that. So, Charlie, I, I'm thinking that as important as that was back then, this is bigger. This period of time where this is far more important in terms of carbon capturing uh, and transportation and storage. <laughs> just because, Not just because of the importance of doing that, but because of how long you guys have been working on carbon capture. I, I've got to think that it wasn't much long after the clean coal technology process that you were working on carbon, because I know you've been doing it for over uh, 20 years, over two decades. Right. So my question is, what prompted, long before we were having public discussions about carbon capture, what prompted the scientists' leadership at EERC to be almost first in the game of the importance of this subject matter? Well, we're always on the edge. Um, if, if, it's, if it's the thing that's being commonly done, uh, 
we've hopefully commercialized it, worked with a partner, and it's off into the commercial space, and it's being handled by a private company. Um, so when we recognize that there's a, a challenge um, to being able to provide clean, reliable, portable energy, uh, I told you what our vision was, right? Uh, if, we, if we work with industry and we recognize there's a challenge, we, we start putting people on that right away. And we, we recognize the value that these coal-fire resources have, as an example, these coal-fire power plants that we have. They provide 24-7, 365. They do have planned outages, but for the most part, they run 24-7, 365 without interruption. But they also have been, they have issues. They have their issues. But when we when we know that they have an issue, we work to solve that issue. So first, we were, we were dealing with SOX and NOx uh, emissions. We worked on that with industry. We solved that challenge. Then we were worried about mercury emissions, rightfully so. We solved that challenge with industry as well. We took care of the mercury challenge. And then the next issue or the current issue here is carbon dioxide. Again, we start working on that challenge. Can we capture the carbon dioxide so that it's never emitted to the atmosphere in the first place? And the answer is absolutely yes. So we start working on these challenges as soon as we understand that this is a risk to being able to provide clean, reliable, affordable energy. And then we, we put people on it and start working on it right away. And it was the, the carbon capture is one that was uh, uh, that challenge to continue to provide that. But also, as Tom pointed out earlier, we think of carbon dioxide as a resource. It is an emission in the sense of regulations purposes, but carbon dioxide is part of essential, it's essential for life, right? It's what our plants take in, use, uh, um, so it's essential in life, but we also recognize it as an incredible opportunity to produce more oil that would otherwise not be able to be produced, and then lowering the carbon intensity of that oil. So if we put carbon dioxide in the ground to push oil out, we actually get more oil than we would otherwise get. More than if you put water in the ground or any other substance we put carbon dioxide in, we can produce oil that we would otherwise not be able to produce at the same time permanently trapping carbon dioxide in the ground. So that was one of the early reasons we started looking at it. We have actually had more than 40 million tons of carbon dioxide captured and transported through North Dakota in a pipeline over the last 20 plus years. Started, I believe, 2001. Uh, the 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 pipeline from Dakota Dakota gasification was built. It goes uh, it goes west from Dakota Gas by Beulah, and then it turns north, goes uh, under the the lake, and then up into Canada for enhanced oil recovery. That's been going without issue for more than 20 years, carrying 40 million tons for enhanced oil recovery. Uh, we have over 5,000 miles. I'm kind of getting into a tangent now, but we worked on that a long time ago. Even before the EERC was a part of the state, we actually worked with the federal government on Dakota gasification. That was one of the things that the, as EERC as a federal facility worked on Dakota gas, which was a federal facility as well before Basin Electric eventually purchased that about the same time we were defederalized actually. That so wasn't a tent. I'm just, go ahead. Yeah. So uh, we, we've been working on capturing carbon dioxide for a long time to utilize it as a resource as opposed to dealing with it strictly as a waste. That wasn't a tangent. It was very important because I'm going to tee up another question for you and then I'll, I'll go to Tom. So 40 million tons over the last 20 years, I'm assuming that's probably to the tar sands maybe. I'm, I'm not sure. 
No, it's to a, it's to oil fields just across the border in okay. Saskatchewan, uh, conventional oil fields like the ones we have in North Dakota. Okay. And there was a lot of work at the time. We were trying to get those first projects to happen in North Dakota. Economics worked out better for them to take it to Canada because of their economic scenario. So 40 million tons over 20 years. And if I, if I read this correctly, or maybe it was one of the YouTube videos of you, uh, of you I watch, currently we have the capacity to store in North Dakota, just, we just talked about 40 million tons, 250 billion tons. And I, th I think the analogy or reference was that's all energy-related emissions countrywide for the next 50 years. Is, did, I, did I say that correctly? Well, it's, I'm not sure if it, uh, I got the, the years right there. 250 billion tons is the storage potential from some of our, just from our saline field formations, saltwater-filled sandstones. We have 250 billion tons. I think the annual emissions from the United States is about 5 billion tons per year. So that'd be 20. So yeah, you'd be right. Yeah. So, or 20. So my, my here's my follow-up question for going to Tom. Obviously, Montana has some of the similar geological formations, you know, below surface, Clearly, Wyoming, uh, Colorado, probably Texas, but then there's places like Minnesota, not at all. I mean, more states, probably not at all. How many are somewhat similar in terms of potential capacity as North Dakota is, if, if you know the answer to that question? I could probably yeah, take that one on. Uh, certainly the Gulf Coast, so Texas, Louisiana, um, the whole Gulf Coast has even more potential than North Dakota has as far as the storage okay. potential. Alaska has enormous storage potential. Uh, Wyoming has great storage potential. And Montana, you mentioned a lot of these states. These are the oil producing states in general. It's the same geology that has generated, trapped, uh, and created oil and gas for millions of years. That's the same geology that we're looking for when we want to store carbon dioxide. So just in general, if it's an oil producing area, it likely has the same characteristics necessary to store millions and billions of tons of carbon dioxide. So then if you look around the planet, the same thing is true, right? So any place you see oil producing countries and areas, they likely have these, they have the characteristics, the geology necessary, but that's just one part. In, in North Dakota and the United States, we have to have a regulatory framework in place. North Dakota has that, Wyoming has that. The federal government has a framework in place. North Dakota and Wyoming both have the regulatory authority to permit storage projects. Every other state has to go to the federal government and ask for a permit to do storage. So it's it creates an incredible opportunity. It's one of the reasons why North Dakota is leading the entire world with respect to carbon dioxide storage is because almost 20, well, over 20 years ago, we started working on this topic. Over a decade ago, the state put together a framework a regulatory framework to do it safely, permanently. Uh, and then when the federal government created the rules, North Dakota was the first one to step up and say, we want to regulate our own industry here in the state. We want that primacy authority and North Dakota has it. 
several years later, Wyoming asked for that authority. They received it. Uh, there are other states that are asking for that authority now, um, but it's going to take them some time to be granted it. So we have the geology. So those places that have great geology, they also have to have the regulatory framework in place. Otherwise, it's much more difficult to get a project permitted. Uh, thank you, Charlie. That that gives me a, a way to tee up my question for Tom. So, so Tom, back to previous conversations that we had with Rich. So, so he didn't use the word, but Charlie was talking about primacy, which is critically important for North Dakota. Wyoming has it. Geology. Um, there aren't. There are more states that do not have ideal geology than do, like North Dakota. So back to your job and your role. Not too many states. The importance of the technology. The importance of the end goal, clean, reliable, affordable energy. For the near future, North Dakota is almost the perfect place to be conducting research, uh, going scale with projects in the various stages. So your office is awfully uh, important. What are some of the things you deal with that... Uh, sometimes people might not understand the importance of that. Well, to start off, going back to the comment about CO2 not necessarily becoming or being only an emission or a waste, but being a byproduct. It's, it's kind of ironic how th there's a credit from the federal government to sequester carbon dioxide. We have the ability to sequester. So we're, we have a lot of interest if, if a company wants to build a plant that has an emission of CO2 and sequester, it's a lot easier to build it on top of the pore space than having to transport it across the Midwest. So therefore, there's quite a few new projects looking at locating here. On the other hand, we have projects, companies that want CO2 as an input, as a feed to whatever product they're making, like sustainable aviation fuels or methanol and, and so forth. And it's actually becoming challenging because now there's a market for CO2. The The way you, you make the most off of it is actually through sequestering, not for utilization. So so there's a little bit of competition, so to speak. If, if, if you wanted to locate next to an ethanol plant and buy the carbon dioxide from that ethanol plant, you're competing with that with the tax credit to sequester as well. So I think it's it's a lot it's a lot of uh handshake agreements in terms of where's the best location where where does it fit in with the the local transportation of carbon dioxide and so forth but it's really creating a lot of interest to coming here so it's kind of exciting times in that in that way and you're part of the office of north dakota economic De of department of commerce and that's all about the i shouldn't say all about one of the key roles of the office and now your your office is providing economic opportunity for for the Absolutely. state of North Dakota, its partners, et cetera, et cetera. Everything we're, we're looking for is, is to add value. You're looking to add value and preferably bring in out-of-state dollars, right? So that, that's, yeah. a, that's, that's the goal of a lot of these companies when they come locate here. What I didn't think would happen 10 years ago when I was in the industry generating electricity 
is that carbon dioxide would be that input to add value. But it's becoming that way now. It's it's becoming a a byproduct versus an emission. I'm going to make a comment, and then I'm going to ask Charlie a question about Project Tundra. It's funny, maybe not funny. It's unique. As as I listen to folks we send to Washington have these wars, these battles over fossil fuels, oil, gas, electrification of vehicles and transportation, and so on and so forth, and carbon, and they simultaneously provide the tax credit structure to make sure that we're doing this, doing it well, which means they totally understand the the long off-ramp that's required. And that's why they do it, to inspire the right kind of projects and partnerships, which leads me right to Project Tundra. Not, not that that's the only project, wonderful project you work on, Charlie, at EERC, but this one, of course, is... It could be a game changer for the planet, clearly for North Dakota. And we, there was just an announcement of the, of the pending grant of $350 million for the project. Tell us where Project Tundra is. Talk a little bit about the partnership, where we're at in terms of the phases or stages, and kind of the art of the long view, where, where it goes in time. That's a loaded question, I'm sorry, and a lot, but... Well, if, of course, uh, Project Tundra is uh, is project by Minkota Power uh, Power Cooperative. So they're a great partner of ours. Uh, Minkota is a, a, a power cooperative that supplies energy to um, a, a lot of customers in North Dakota and Minnesota. We've been fortunate to work with them for a number of years now on Project Tundra. And the goal of that is to capture the carbon dioxide from the Milton R. Young power station near center in North Dakota, and then store it permanently in the ground. Uh, we have worked with them on a, a pre-feed, so front-end engineering and design, uh, a feed study. Uh, and, and what we're doing there is trying to understand how we can capture carbon dioxide from the power plant before it gets to the atmosphere and then store it in the ground. Uh, we actually have a CO2 capture unit at the EERC, uh, and we, we took it apart, our fantastic, we built it here, we've taken it apart, we put it in the stack at Milton R. Young Power Station, captured, a, uh, or took a slipstream of the emissions from the power plant, captured the carbon dioxide out of it to see what things we might need to be concerned with when designing a full system of Minkota and their engineers designing a full system. So that has been completed, the, the pre-feed, the feed study. Uh, They're still waiting on making their financial, their final investment decision. So that's the, the point where they say, yes, we're going to move forward with this. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when they're um, when they're expected to make that decision. But these, these different pieces that happen, the $350 million from the federal government, um, the the subsurface aspect. So that's on the, on the capture side. On the subsurface side, we have worked with them in a project, uh, several projects called Carbon Safe, where we're looking at what does the geology below the plant look like, or it, it doesn't matter if it's below the plant. It just so happens that Minkota sits on top of the some of the best geology to store carbon dioxide, so they were perfectly suited, uh, right there where they are. We worked with them, drilled wells to evaluate the subsurface there. Uh, 
worked with them to write permits for CO2 storage, storage facilities. Uh, and they have received uh, those CO2 storage facility permits, which is really an important aspect with respect to trying to make that financial investment decision. The investors in the in the capture unit are going to want to make sure that the CO2 can be safely stored. So that portion is in place. The permits are in place. They would need to drill some uh, additional wells, but they already have some wells in place. It's all ready to go from that perspective. The feed study looks all very positive. This is a large undertaking from the perspective of a, of a capital. Um, it's a capitally intensive project to build. So that's where they're at right now is, this, is determining if they have the right financial stack in place to be able to build the carbon capture unit, and then they'll start capturing carbon dioxide and storing it in the ground. Uh, that would mean then that that Minkota, Milton R. Young's power station would be able to produce that 24-7 reliable power without carbon emissions or with very low carbon emissions. So they're targeting 95, 90 to 95% capture. So most of the carbon dioxide would be captured in 24-7 reliability. It's an incredible opportunity for us. You mentioned something earlier, so I can't help it. I'm gonna I'm gonna go there. You mentioned, you know, the arguments in Washington, right? About about this or that, what technology should we use? I think we as a society need to decide what our goal is. If our goal is eliminating fossil fuels, that's that's one thing. If our if our real goal is to you know provide clean, and if clean means no carbon emissions, we can do that, and we can do that on oil and gas. We can do that on coal. We can do that with wind. We can do that with solar. We can do that with a variety of different technologies. So we need to decide what the goal is. For me, for for what what I'm thinking of given, as you mentioned earlier, my time in the Middle East, my time in the service, uh, I want to see us produce clean, reliable, affordable energy here in the United States so that we don't have to send, I don't. I have a couple of kids, I don't want to see them go halfway around the world to fight for that energy security. You already mentioned how the, the there's energy poverty and two billion more people. We have to utilize the resources we have. We have the ability to clean them up if clean is carbon again. So let's use all these resources. Mm. And Project Tundra sets that example. If we can do it in North Dakota, we can repeat that all over the world and provide reliable, affordable energy with very low or no carbon emissions. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, this, for me, begs the question, given the size of the power plant and the goal and the technology involved, is there any other like project currently on the planet that has the carbon sequestration storage goal with a plant that large? Is there something similar to that anywhere? It happens to be uh, within 50 miles. Uh, we have a Rainbow Energy Center, formerly Coal Creek Station, We've been working with uh, the fine individuals uh, at Rainbow Energy to do the same thing at that power plant. And that one is even bigger. So uh, they are moving forward with decarbonizing that plant. They're moving forward with creating products. Uh, so they're a different company. Uh, they are not a co-op. So they're able to do a lot more other things uh, in addition. So yes, Rainbow Energy is looking at doing the same thing um, near Underwood, North Dakota. 
which is really exciting. And right next door, you talked about ethanol earlier. Um, uh, we have the Blue Flint ethanol facility is already capturing carbon dioxide and storing it below the plant there, which is right next to Colt Creek Station Rainbow Energy Center. Um, so, so this is not, uh, Minn Kota's facility is not the only one. We're going to replicate it there. Uh, and before Minn Kota, they were not, uh, they're not the first. This is already, the capture is already happening at Boundary Dam Power Station, which is actually right next door to the Weyburn oil fields where we've been sending North Dakota CO2 for 20 years. And they've been capturing a million tons off of one of their units. Um, so they're one of the first to try it. Um, we know that we have a lot of power plants around the world that also sit on top of great geology. And I like to think of North Dakota as another one of those unique scenarios where we have these mine mouth coal fire power plants where we can basically just take the carbon out of the ground right there, turn it into electrons and put the carbon right back in. It's this incredible recycling plant. We're taking it and, and then we're going to remediate the ground so you can't even tell that we were there and uh, farm it just like we were before. This is so exciting. So, Tom, here's my question. I, th I think I heard this correctly. And Charlie, please correct me if I say this incorrectly. It would appear that between the Project Tundra and Rainbow, we have likely the two most significant project types in carbon capture sequestration involving power plants with this geology, maybe anywhere in the world. We have two of them going, being conducted simultaneously with 20 years of experience moving carbon through a pipeline safely, which is critically important for all of us. So from your perspective and the office that you're the manager of, these are pretty big home runs when it comes to telling the story of opportunity, resources, EERC, uh, partners, and then in the end, creating opportunity for North Dakotans. Would, is, is that a fair statement to make? That, that's absolutely accurate. It's Those two projects are, are some of the biggest projects. As Charlie mentioned, Boundary Dam, located not too far away, is a coal plant that is also doing carbon capture there's actually another one in Texas, Petronova as well. And the purpose for theirs was for enhanced oil recovery, carbon dioxide. Now, the fact that we have two ethanol plants, one of them very recently started capturing and sequestering, and the other Red Trail Energy has been going for, I believe a year and a half now without, without an issue, running full carbon capture and sequestration. And then there's, the, another project as well, which is not our carbon dioxide, but from Wyoming, is Denbury, which is now Exxon Mobil. They are using carbon dioxide to produce a barrel of oil that has less carbon content than the carbon dioxide that went in the ground to take its place. So a, a carbon negative barrel of oil. Um, with all of these projects either in planning, the, the two coal plants are in planning right now and engineering feed studies, but the two ethanol plants, the gasification, Dakota Gasification Company, and then you throw in Denver, they're operating and have been operating without issue. And, and 
Dakota Gasification Company is the best example because it is truly it's 22 years of operation, and there there has been no issue. And and so, so I, I think highlighting these success stories is critical. The the amount of times I've had a phone call from a company that reads about Class Six primacy, they they have a project they're looking at building and they're wondering about whether they could sequester their carbon dioxide. When we dig into it a little further they always make a, a generalized statement of, well, hopefully this works out. Like, like there's nothing operating right now, but someday. And then when we explain to them, no, the, there's operators right now sequestering carbon dioxide, some of which have been doing it for over 20 years, their jaws drop because they had no idea. <clears throat> Those are not the, sto the stories that we're highlighting. We're maybe we're spending too much time highlighting what may happen in the future versus what has happened. So I think it's pretty crucial to realize that our track record is very, very good right now. And we should, we should celebrate that. Therefore, the next project that wants to add another operator to carbon sequestration is great. It's, it's a big feat to do, but it's not the first. It's already been done. This has been ongoing for a while. Yeah. You know, proof of the pudding is look at the private sector partners that have been part of the journey uh, for a long time. You know, Marathon, uh, Continental Resources, you know, the more some of the more current Kiwit and Mitsubishi heavy industries. You know, they have, there's a reason they they partner up with institutions like ERC, and then really with the state of North Dakota and the, and the federal government. I would be in error if I didn't mention this with regards to the footprint of EERC in the collaboration that takes place. So I've already mentioned just a small handful of the private sector partners, that, and many of them have global footprints. Many of them have global. But then you, you also work with not just the state of North Dakota, but the Department of Energy, you work with uh, a number of private uh, public and excuse me utility companies and then you uh, work with multiple states multiple countries really a number of provinces in canada so mm -hmm. uh, charlie erc is a global player is it not in, in yeah. this incredible journey absolutely we have worked in all 50 states and 53 countries around the world um, so we absolutely are. We are, as, as I said, we're part of the University of North Dakota. We're not for profit. Our vision is to lead the world in developing these solutions. And not only that, but sharing them. So I regularly go around the world, uh, around the country, around the world, and members of our team do as well to talk about the things that we're doing uh, and how it can be translated and done in other, other places. Uh, things that have worked, things that haven't worked. Because of course, there's things there's there's things that don't go as we expect, and so we have lessons learned that we can share with others as well. So, we have an incredible opportunity. North Dakota is this is is a great place to be able to to pioneer these technologies, pioneering spirit. Really, there's a couple things I wanted to hit on uh, that I that I don't know. You know, when I talk to my family and some of my friends, I don't think that they recognize the importance of of energy and developing our resources and what it means for day to day life. Um, and and that is just talking about the Bakken, and I'll and I'll get to my point because the need for CO two plays into this. 
the Bakken Petroleum System, uh, we have produced almost 5 billion barrels of oil out of the Bakken. And that's since 2000, the early 2000s, we produced almost that many. It's been over $25 billion in tax revenue. And I'm saying billion, not million, billion in tax revenue for the state of North Dakota. It's over half of our annual uh, our half of our annual tax revenue for the state of North Dakota comes from the Bakken system. <laughs> Just that one thing. And that's providing roads, schools, all the services that our state provides for us. And when we look at the need for producing the next barrels of oil, which provide the next economic benefit to our state, uh, we're going to be able to produce another five, probably five billion barrels um, of oil, kind of maintaining where we're at today. So think about that, another $25, $30 billion in tax revenue. And then it's going to start to drop off the production, not because there's not oil, because in the Bakken, there is maybe 100 to 900 billion barrels. So if we produce... 10 billion barrels, we've still only scratched the surface, but we need something to help us get it out of the ground. Carbon dioxide is that answer. It's something that we have, uh, well, we think we have in, in massive abundance, when in fact, if we wanted to, if we put all of our CO2 emissions in North Dakota that go from point sources like power plants and ethanol facilities, today that's around 30 million tons. If we put it all to work in the Bakken today with conventional thinking of how much oil that would produce, it would be maybe 165,000 barrels a day, which is a lot. But we produce right now uh, over 1.2 million barrels a day. We wanna replace that production and continue to see our state prosper with jobs and energy and tax revenue. We need more like 100 million tons or 200 million tons of CO2. We are working on this. We've done pilot plant, uh, pilot tests in the field with the operators on how to do enhanced oil recovery. We recognize we need hundreds of millions of tons of carbon dioxide. And as Tom pointed out, in the process of doing that, we'll store more carbon than that barrel of oil produces. So we'll produce carbon neutral or carbon negative barrels of oil, at the same time generating jobs, tax revenue, income and prosperity for our state. We don't have enough CO2. And we need CO2 to come from other places. As pointed out earlier, we have 250 billion tons of potential in our saline formations. So pipelines come in to store, to capture a tax credit for a period of time. When that's done, those pipes aren't just going to turn off. They're going to look for the next place to put the carbon dioxide. And in about 10 years, we're going to need tens or hundreds of millions of tons of carbon dioxide. We can put that to work in the Bakken, putting oil uh, that has no or low carbon emissions onto the marketplace. And I'd rather use those barrels than buy them from the Middle East or Venezuela, who, who's not going to do those things. So I really wanted to hit on that because people don't think about that implication. Of, we need that carbon dioxide. We need it badly, actually. I got goosebumps listening to that. I, that that was uh, that was really well done. Thank you, Charlie. So here's my follow-up question. 15 years from now, that's not that far away. 15 years from now, at that point in time, there'll be at least another billion, at least another billion people on the planet, overwhelming majority of them born into energy poverty. And this 
project type what, that we're conducting in North Dakota with partners, EERC, multiple partners, is critically important because it, it provides a, a prototype to be done elsewhere. Where do you think we'll be in 15 years with regards to being able to deliver that for a greater audience? And I'm thinking about all those people born into poverty, energy poverty. We, we need to develop these solutions. I mean, if we think about how in the United States over 100 years ago, we figured out how to produce our energy. We have this incredible amount of resources, coal, oil, gas, all these things here in the United States. That brought the United States uh, out of energy poverty over 150 years ago. These other countries that are still in energy poverty, they're going to want to utilize their resources, right? Uh, no matter what anybody else says, they're going to utilize the resources that they have to be able to try to bring, bring their people out of energy poverty and provide them with prosperity that we enjoy today. So we have an opportunity in those, those instances where they have oil and gas resources, where they have fossil fuel resources, where they have opportunity for wind and solar. We have the opportunity to help and show them how to use those resources in the best clean and effective way possible. The alternative, if they don't have these things, or we say that they can't use them, is they have to live off of whatever we hand out to them. And I don't think that's right or fair either. So we have an opportunity and a responsibility in my mind to help show them how to use the resources that they have in the best way possible. And not every place has the same thing. Some places have abundant, as you pointed out, North Dakota, let's take North Dakota, Minnesota as an example. It's a fine example. North Dakota has deep saline storage potential, oil and gas, coal, Minnesota does not. You look at the energy mix of the two, we work together. We need to, to provide reliable, affordable energy. Minnesota, we see, we've got solar arrays going out, wind turbines, things like that, because they don't have an opportunity to do geologic storage. They don't have an opportunity for oil and gas production. And so likewise, if you look around the world, there'll be places that have the opportunity for for geologic storage of carbon dioxide, have the opportunity to use fossil fuel resources without emissions, and places that'll be able to utilize uh, wind and solar, renewable energy sources, nuclear energy. We need everything. Every time we think we're going to switch away from an energy technology, what ends up happening is what makes up the new is that new thing. And we continue using the other thing at the same level we had been before. It really hasn't changed. Last year was the most coal used in the world was last year. This year we'll, we'll top it. So when we think about that as what's the reality, let's figure out a way to clean it up. Wow, thank you, Charlie. Tom? Most I would like to add, add to that ahead. comment, Charlie, in terms of other countries and developing countries. It's not just about their energy production and, and being able to get them electricity and so forth. The other side that we're able to help with here in North Dakota is not exploiting their lands for the rare earths and the materials that we want to input into our economy in, in the first world country, right? Um, what We have a lot of resources here right now that we can develop and do it in the cleanest, most environmentally friendly way possible. But for whatever reason, when, it's, when there's not a direct admission Sometimes I feel like we're just completely willing to look the other way on however that material was gathered across the world. But it's 
it's destroying landscapes in countries that are developing. So I think it's not only our, our goal to teach new technologies and implement them across the world, but it's also eliminating bad practices by doing it the right way locally. And so I can't stress that enough. We've got projects here. You talked about teaming up with Minnesota as an example. Minnesota has nickel and Minnesota has iron. Both of those are looking at producing, utilizing North Dakota's ways to produce them with our energy and doing it clean and doing it as low carbon intensity as possible. So I think we got to look at more than just the energy production, but look at what it takes to, to uh, provide for the lifestyles we have. So those inputs that we're demanding from across the globe, maybe we should look locally for those. Um, the other side of that too, I want to bring up is the barrels of oil uh, comments that the number of barrels of oil that will come out in the next 15 years is, is a big part of our economy. As Charlie mentioned, over 50% of our revenue comes in from the oil and gas industry in the Bakken. Keep in mind that in 2023 numbers, our natural gas production is expected to double 10 years from now. And if we double that production, to get the same tax revenue, we need to utilize it or transport it. If carbon sequestration is going to be a big part of using our fossil fuels, why not use it locally? If to transport the carbon molecules through, through the pipeline across the, the borders and then turn around and want to transport them back after it's turned into carbon dioxide, there's a lot of extra transportation that could be avoided by maybe developing some of our own projects here. And, I just throw that pitch out there because we're an egg, a very, very agricultural heavy state, a major user of fertilizer as an example. We do have fertilizer production right now, but not even close to what we consume. Why not do it in the lowest carbon intensity possible, utilizing our natural gas, lowering our emissions and making a lower carbon intensity fertilizer that we can use here locally. So there's there's so many different ways to look at this. Um, we've got a lot of opportunities, but I just can't stress enough that bringing these discussions to the public to realize that there's very, very good reason for for this uh, sequestration research and what we're putting into this. Yeah, you talk your time. Good point. I I would I know uh, we haven't talked about hydrogen yet at all, but you you hit on spot on. Uh, use our resources. We we export six times more. Then we consume, we can consume more too and do it in the best way possible. Creating hydrogen here to use it to make fertilizer, to use it to make sustainable aviation fuels. We just were a recipient of a of a uh, cooperative agreement from the, selected for negotiation on a cooperative agreement to lead a hydrogen hub across uh, five states, including Minnesota, North Dakota, Montana, uh, South Dakota, and Wisconsin to to utilize these resources, whether they're wind and solar, nuclear, and also natural gas with carbon capture to create hydrogen. Uh, another outstanding opportunity for North Dakota and why we're perfectly positioned to lead. Gentlemen, I, I've learned a lot today. I want to thank you so much for taking time. And I know you're both very busy uh, to join me. I just heard, Charlie, that we probably should do a follow-up at some point in time to talk about hydrogen and then maybe an update on the, you know, the uh, pro project phases or stages for Tundra and others because they're so important. In, in closing, thank you for what you do. Uh, th thank you for thank you for caring. Uh, 
of being genuine and having compassion. Um, the the need for what we're doing in the state isn't just important for us. It's important for for the planet, and it's important for people yet to come that will not be born into some of the privileges that we have in the great state of North Dakota. And it's our it's our duty to to lead with our heart and care about them, uh, and, and doing the best job possible. Appreciate you so much. Uh, I'm. I'm proud to live in a place like North Dakota where folks like you and your teams are doing what you're doing because it really matters. It matters in a big way. So hopefully we can do this again, if you wouldn't mind. I'd love to, yeah. Like we could talk a lot about hydrogen. As you can tell, um, really passionate about what we do. The people we have at the EERC are the smartest, brightest, most talented, and you pointed out caring people. They care about what happens to their family, their friends, neighbors, and the entire global community. So we're fortunate to have the fine folks here at the EERC for sure. Charlie and Tom, thank you so much. We'll do this again soon. You have a great day. Thanks, you too. Thanks, Mike.